Let's go ahead and turn this morning in our Bibles to the book of Lamentations, chapter 1. Lamentation, chapter 1. All right, so we're going to read Lamentation chapter 1, and as far as I know, I hope so. Yeah, but by the time I messed with the buttons all over again, I'm not sure. <laughs> all right, so Lamentation chapter 1, we're going to read it. We're going to... I won't tell you what the theme is yet, but we're going to go through it just so to kind of set the setting in your mind. You can get a feel for where it is. It's written by Jeremiah. Uh, he's lamenting the fact that Jerusalem has been dispersed now, taken captive, and everything that he's preached about for the last 40 years of his ministry came true, um, came to the end of that 40 years, and... I don't know, just thinking about this now, it's like, what did he have to show for it? Because everything he said was going to happen, happened because they didn't do what he said they should have done, so it wouldn't happen. But he stayed faithful. And so you get to, through Jeremiah, whom I just love just more so than I ever have. Then you get into Lamentations. So I've, I've read through Lamentations uh, this week. I've started through it again just because I... Uh, there's so much to get, and I want to make sure that um, I'm getting everything. So, once we get this straightened out, we're going to be good to go. Wait, you didn't hit the button to shut it off. I did. You did. Okay. All right, so Lamentation Chapter 1. How doth the city sit solitary that was full of people? How is she become as a widow? She that was great among the nations and princess among the provinces, how has she become tributary? She weepeth sore in the night, and her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she hath none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. Judah is gone into captivity because of affliction and because of great servitude. She dwelleth among the heathen, she findeth no rest. All her persecutors overtook her between the straits. The ways of Zion do mourn, because none come to the solemn feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh, her virgins are afflicted, and she is in bitterness. Her adversaries are the chief, her enemies prosper. For the Lord hath afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children are gone into captivity before the enemy. And from the daughter of Zion, all her beauty is departed. Her princes are become like hearts that find no pasture, and they are gone without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembered in the days of her affliction and of her miseries, all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old, when her people fell into the hand of the enemy, and none helped her. The adversary saw her and did mock at her Sabbaths. Jerusalem hath grievously sinned, therefore she is removed. All that honored her despise her, because they have seen her nakedness, yea, she sigheth and turneth backward. Her filthiness is in her skirts. She remembereth not her last end. Therefore she came down wonderfully. She had no comforter. O Yehovah, behold my affliction, for the enemy hath magnified himself. The adversary hath spread out his hand upon all her pleasant things. For she hath seen that the heathen entered into her sanctuary whom thou didst command that they should not enter into thy congregation. All her people sigh. They seek bread. They have given their pleasant things for meat to relieve the soul. See, O Yehovah, and consider, for I am become vile. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold, and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith Yehovah hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. 
From above hath he sent fire into my bones, and it prevaileth against them. He hath spread a net for my feet. He hath turned me back. He hath made me desolate and faint all the day. The yoke of my transgressions is bound by his hand. They are wreathed and come up upon my neck. He hath made my strength to fall. Yehovah hath delivered me into their hands, from whom I am not able to rise up. The Lord hath trodden me underfoot, all my mighty men in the midst of me. He hath called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord hath trodden the virgin, the daughter of Judah, as in a winepress. For these things I weep. Mine eye, mine eye runneth down with water, because the comforter that should relieve my soul is far from me. My children are desolate, because the enemy prevailed. Zion spreadeth forth her hands, and there is none to comfort her. Yehovah hath commanded concerning Jacob that his adversaries should be round about him. Jerusalem is as a menstruous woman among them. Yehovah is righteous, for I have rebelled against his commandment. Here I pray you, all people, and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men are gone into captivity. I called for my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders gave up the ghost in a city while they sought their meat to relieve their souls. Behold, O Yehovah, for I am in distress. My bowels are troubled. My heart is turned within me, for I have grievously rebelled. Abroad the sword bereaveth. At home there is as death. They have heard that I sigh. There is none to comfort me. All mine enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that thou hast done it. Thou wilt bring the day that thou hast called, and they shall be like unto me. Let all their wickedness come before thee, and do unto them as thou hast done unto me for all my transgressions. For my sighs are many, and my heart is faint. Now that's just chapter 1. <laughs> it's not a very feel-good passage, but you know, as I was reading through this, I was thinking, if nothing else, if you read through Lamentations, it makes you very acutely aware of the consequences of sin. It's just not good. And if nothing else, in reading this book and realizing that what has happened to them is, has happened because of their walking away from God and their own waywardness, it should put, it puts in me anyway, a fear of, you know, God has told us what he wants us to do for our good and has told us what will happen if we don't, not because he wants to be mean and capricious towards us, but because it's just a natural consequence. He's trying to warn us, you know, don't take a right down that road because it's going to end up uh, in, in a gully. Well, I'm going to turn down there anyway because that's where I want to go. Well, God already told you not to do that. Well, and that's why he's given us his word. That's why we have lamentation. Look, read this. See what happened. Don't do it because these are the natural consequences that will, will uh, follow from sin. Now, I've entitled this uh, message Restless. R-E-S-T-L-E-S-S. -S, restless. Um, and I get that from verse 3. Judah is gone into captivity because of affliction and because of great servitude. She dwelleth among the heathen and findeth no rest. When I read that, it just, I just, it stopped me dead. It just stopped me dead because it spoke to me personally. She dwells among the heathen and dwelling there, she finds no rest. And I thought, yep, that's me. That's us. That's God's people. We're dwelling among the heathen. And I'll, I'll make this personal because I don't want to put, say that you're thinking the same thing. I'm dwelling among the heathen, out in a dispersion. And more and more as I come back into this Hebraic mindset, uh, come into this Hebraic mindset, I'm finding that within me is a restlessness as I dwell in the midst of the heathen, because I know biblically God's people aren't supposed to be out of the land, they're supposed to be in the land. And 
there's a restlessness because I want to be back in the land, and I don't want, I want to, I keep saying back, I want to be back, I want to be in the land, and I don't want to be in the midst of the heathen anymore. I'm just, and I'll end with this one, I'm just getting tired of it. I, I don't want this anymore. I'm, I'm longing, I'm going to preach everything in my introduction. So anyway, <laughs> let's just stop with that. So we find out that there's, there's a restlessness going on. Chapter 5, just one verse, verse 5, it says, Our necks are under persecution. We labor and have no rest. Just generally speaking, there's no rest for the people of God when they are living outside the land. We should have a restlessness. The problem is God's people have become at ease in their Zion rather than become ill at ease in their Zion. We've been out here so long, it's become natural. And as the Bible says, like it happened for Israel, they became at ease when they should have been ill at ease. The truth is, for the people of God that are hungering and thirsting after Him, there is for them no rest while they're living outside the land. And if you find yourself in rest, not distressed, if you are at ease rather than ill at ease, then you need to be taking a look at yourselves. Because for me, this was just wonderful. Because we're not supposed to be happy out here. We're not. We are like by the rivers of Babylon, we hung our harps up on the willows because we can't sing the Lord's song in a strange land. And the persecutors say, whether mockingly or just because they like to play something for us. And they say, no. You know, and just like our song, Jerusalem, if I forget you, let my right hand forget what it's supposed to do. Playing the harp, no. I'm in a strange land. And they're not finding any rest. However, when it came time to come back after 70 years, not all came back. Why? Because they were at ease in their new environment. And that's not how it's supposed to be. So we're going to look at God's restless people outside the land. And how did they get in that condition? So I have four thoughts. The cause, the immediate results, the long-term damage, and the solution. We're going to look at God's restless people outside the land. How'd they get into this condition? So the cause, then the immediate results, the long-term damage, and then the solution. So how'd they get into this condition? How is it that they are outside the land? Well, I've already stated it. Primarily, the cause is sin. Just plain and simple, sin. And, and, and it seems to be in, in a twofold way, two prongs here. There's the sin of the people, and there's the sin and failure of the prophets. So, the people sinned, the prophets sinned, and because of that, the dispersion happens, as Jeremiah spent 40 years previously talking about. So we see this sin of the people in, in a few different verses, I just because I want to bring this to your attention, because it's sort of interwoven. So in chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Her adversaries are the chief, her enemies prosper, for Yehovah hath afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Verse 8. Jerusalem hath grievously sinned, therefore she is removed. Um, uh, verse 14. The yoke of my transgressions is bound by his hand. They are wreathed. And come up upon my neck. He hath made my strength to fail. 
The Lord's delivered me into their hands. I'm not able to rise up. And that's, that's, gosh, that's, and then verse 22. Let all their wickedness come before thee and do unto them as thou hast done unto me for all my transgressions. So there's the acknowledgement. We're in the mess that we're in because of sin. And, and we as God people need to realize that the road to sin, down sin, starts out looking pretty good, but it's just a disaster. Um, joy, uh, sin, there's pleasure in sin for a season, but afterwards are the ramifications of it all. Paul told us that we're supposed to read these things back here in this part of the Bible because they are written for our admonition and learning. So when I go, as Warren goes through this chapter, what jumps off at me is the cause is sin. And if I want to stay close to God, have his blessings upon me, then I, I have to try to stay away from sin in my life. You know, James says that we're to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. You know, I got thinking about that. I got to not get lost where I'm going here. But, you know, we get spotted. Don't we get spotted in this world? It's impossible. And so what stuck in my mind was this past week, because we had the snow, I think it was this past week, and it was melting. I'm driving down the road from the airport. What's that called? Heading back to the highway. Brown, Brown Avenue right there by the gas stations. So I'm driving in my bus, I'm watching this car, and because there's, you can't walk on the sidewalk, this poor schmuck is <laughs> walking in the road, you know? Minding his own business. And this car, you just, the timing couldn't have been better. While he's walking, this car, could have moved over, doesn't splash. He just gets spotted all over the place. And the guy just, he's stunned, and he looks, and he shakes his head, and I'm sitting there driving, and I'm shaking my head. You know, what did I just see? How did this happen? It shouldn't have happened, but now this guy who is clean is spotted by the sake of my illustration. All over the place. Well, that's how it is for God's people walking through this world. You cannot help but get spotted, right? It just happens. Well, Part of the problem for that is when we enter into sin, then we start to pick up the spots and they become like barnacles and just slow us down and weigh us down and ultimately cause damage. Now, so the sin of the people, that's the cause. But the second part is the sin and failure of the prophets. Uh, chapter 2, we're going to move out of this chapter just because it's further through and I don't want to read a ton. But um, chapter 2, and let me pull up a note here. Uh, let's see. As long as I can connect. Okay. All right, so chapter 2, the sin and failure of the prophets is what we're going to look at. So chapter 2, verse 9. Her gates are sunk into the ground. He hath destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the Gentiles. The law is no more. Her prophets also find no vision from Yehovah. And while we're in chapter 2, verse 14. The prophets have seen vain and foolish things for thee. And they have not discovered thine iniquity to turn away thy captivity, but have seen for thee false burdens and causes of banishment. I mean, the job of the preacher, the job of the prophet, the job of the pastor, whatever you want to call it, the responsibility is he has to get up there and just preach and show forth the error of sin in the lives of his people. Well, the prophets didn't want to do that. Instead of telling them what Jeremiah had been telling them and not winning any popularity contest, they're seeing vain and foolish things. They've not told the people, not revealed to them their iniquity in order to turn them away from captivity, but because of their own self-interest, they didn't do that. And so the prophets failed and they sinned in relation to the people. Now, I found an interesting note. 
which just blew my mind, where it says in chapter 2, verse 9, the law is no more. So, I, you know, I, I, try, I like to check my resources. And so Henry Morris, I've mentioned him to you before, uh, the founder of uh, Creation Institute, Research Creation Institute, whatever it's called. He, they, there's a study Bible out I have it, the Morris Study Bible, but there's, for some reason, a new Defender Study Bible, and you can read the notes online. But anyway, so, I, I, you know, I, when I see things like the laws no more, that just, that's just like a flag for me to look into. So listen to what Henry Morris said and see if it doesn't make your head swirl just a little bit. He says, the law, uh, sorry, this was not the end of the Torah, of course. Note the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 17 through 18. But the min so let me, without giving you that, this was not the end of the Torah, of course, but the ministry of the Torah through the temple and priestly system in Jerusalem. He's got that right. So he says, no, obviously the Torah has not been done away with. Just go read Matthew 5, 17 and 18. He's saying what's been done away with is the ministry of the Torah through the temple and priestly system in Jerusalem. Isn't that right? And Matthew, that's a proof text, because Matthew 5.17, is, it's always used to show, look, Jesus, Yeshua came to do away with it all. When he says he didn't come to do away with it all. But that just, my head spun, you know. It's like, I, I don't understand. Because he said what we've been saying, right? And we're getting ridiculed for saying this. The Torah, the, of course this wasn't the end of the Torah. It wasn't the end of the Torah. Uh, it was the end of the ministry of the Torah because the temple and the priestly system was done away with. Boy, that was good. But the reason the law is no more in verse 9 is, is because the temple is done away with and the priestly system has been done away with. The prophets didn't preach what they should have. The people didn't listen to Jeremiah when he preached. So the whole thing's gone to H-E double toothpicks in a, in a hand basket. And the law is no more, but it's not saying that it's been done away with. It's not being able to be carried out as God wants it to be carried out because there's no temple, no priesthood. And that's exactly what we've been saying. That's exactly what we've been saying. So I thought that was so, so cool. So, you know, but, but this is like how we were. You know, a guy like this could say something like this, and then you get over into the New Testament. Well, of course, it's, you know, we're not supposed to observe the Sabbath. We're not supposed to keep the faiths in the festivals. We're not supposed to do any of that. Jesus did away with it all. The dichotomy is what always messed with my mind all these years. So, oh, I got one more. Chapter 4. Chapter 4, again, this is about the sin and failure of the prophets. Chapter 4, verse 13. For the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, priests that have shed the blood of the just in the midst of her. And then it just goes on and, and talks more about that. But it, so... And it, don't, don't leave this first, but I wanted you to see how that the problem not was just with the people, but with the prophets not doing what they're supposed to do. And then chapter 4, verse 13, the sins of the prophets and the iniquities of a priest. Now, I found an interesting note about this. And, and to me, it was interesting because I've done my blogs on, on, on the, the, this issue of Catholicism, if you've been reading any of them. Luke, did you read my blog for today? Shameless plug. <laughs> what do you think? Oh, that's good. <laughs> um, so anyway, it made me think when I read this note, because I, I've been doing my blogs on, on this, this Catholicism issue and, and the, uh, interconnecting the linking up of mainstream evangelical Christianity in part with, with Catholicism. And, of course, that's not a popular thing to talk about today, because just like in Jeremiah's day, nobody wanted to hear him because he was just doom and gloom and you're sin and there's a problem. And so they wanted to go listen to all these prophets and priests that were telling exactly what they want to heard. Well, I'm coming along not doing anything much different than what had been t preached in the past about this, this Catholicism connection. And now we have Chrislam. So anyway, I'm getting off a little bit. So, but verse 13. So Adam Clark had an interesting note, which just, just again, was one of those that just hit me upside the head. 
So he starts, for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priest. These most wretched beings, <laughs> yeah, these priests and prophets, these most wretched beings, under the pretense of zeal for the true religion, persecuted the genuine prophets, priests, and people of God, and caused their blood to be shed in the midst of the city in the most open and public manner than this part, the rest of the note, exactly as those murderous priests and bloodthirsty preachers under the reign of bloody Queen Mary did in England. However, the prolific priests and idolatrous prophets in Jerusalem only shed the blood of the saints of God there. But the sanguinary papists in the above reign of Queen Mary in England burnt the blood there, for they burnt the people alive, and at the same time, in their worse than Molechian Moloch, as they were born, would burn the kids to, to Moloch, um, uh, so let, me, let me start again. But the sanguinary papists in the above reign burnt the blood here in England, he's saying, for they burnt the people alive. And at the same time, in their worse than Molechian cruelty, consigned with all the fervor peculiar to their then ruthless church, the souls of those whom they thus massacred to the bitter pains of eternal death. O earth, cover not their blood. And, and people think, I'm crazy today, right? No, these guys saw this stuff clearly because they were dealing with it. Now, that's just kind of a side note, but I, I couldn't pass it up. I thought it was so good. So the restlessness, the people find no rest among the heathen. Well, well, why are they there in the first place? Because the people sinned and the prophets sinned. All right, the second thing, the immediate results. Now, I have two of them here. The first one is sadness. The second one is servitude. So they sinned, the people sinned. The priests sinned. Now they're scattered. They're, they're not in their land anymore. Now Jeremiah is writing about this. And so he's telling us what the immediate results of this is. First off, sadness. Chapter 1. Hey, Judy, could you close that door just a little bit? I'm having a hard time concentrating. So chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now, I'm thinking about sadness here. So as I read these verses, I'm just thinking sadness. How doth the city sit solitary that was full of people? How has she become as a widow? She that was great among the nations and princess among the provinces, how has she become tributary? She weepeth sore in the night, and her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she hath none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. So there's just, to me, this undergirding feeling of sadness. And so under this point, I want you to notice there's three times this word none is used. So we have it in verse 2. So there's, first off, none to comfort. So verse 2, we've just read that. She have none to comfort her. It's also in verse 17. Zion spreadeth forth her hands, and there is none to comfort her. It's also in verse 21. They have heard that I sigh, there is none to comfort me. You know, that, just, this is, oozes with sadness. They're out of the land now. They're suffering penalty for their own sin and listening to the prophets and priests. And, and it's just a sad situation. There's weeping. How, how has this happened? And so in the midst of this sadness, they're realizing there's none to comfort. Second, there's none to come to the feasts. Verse 4, the ways of Zion do mourn because none come to the solemn feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh, her virgins are afflicted, and she is in bitterness. Now we're going to come back to that one in a little bit. And then the third one under sadness is verse 7. 
Jerusalem remembered in the days of her affliction uh, and of her miseries all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old, when her people fell into the hand of the enemy and none did help. So, you know, sin is pleasurable for a season, but at the end it's just going to rear its ugly head and bite you. And sin is such a devastating thing that if you've... I've known enough preachers who've been in the ministry that have sinned their way out of the ministry, and I can tell you they're not happy. That sin that they found very appealing and very attracting, once they got it and got into it and it finally bit them, you're talking about some pretty sad people. Sin is very voluptuous at first, but you find out eventually that balloon just loses its air, and it just leaves you in a sad state. I mean, we personally knew a pastor whose ministry supported us when we were raising our support for New Orleans, had, you know, a small congregation, oh, bigger than us, but a small congregation, but no treasure. He was handling the money. It got found out he was dipping in the till. That man and his wife and kids, before that became public, and I think probably maybe not had any bad motivation for doing this, I went afterwards to, to see them after a little bit of time elapsed. Well, he was working third shift. He was asleep. The wife came to the door. I was shell-shocked. The joy, the radiance, everything was just gone. Do you remember that? Just gone. Sadness. Jeremiah is trying to get us to see when you trifle with sin, if you don't get off of that trail, it's nothing but sadness. And then, if that's not bad enough, he talks about servitude. So the first one, sadness. None to comfort. None to come to the feast. None to help. Now, this is another negative word. It's the word no. First, verse 3. We've already looked at it. She dwelleth among the heathen. She findeth no rest. All her persecutors overtook her in the straits. This is, they're, they're becoming now servants. You know, it, it talks about how does she become tributary in verse 1. All right, also under servitude, no rest, but then verse 6. And from the daughter of Zion, all her beauties departed. Her princes are become like hearts that find no pasture. I mean, they're having to scramble around now to get their sustenance, which was plentiful. So when they had it good, now because they're tributary, they're finding no rest because of their captors, they're also realizing that, that that which was plentiful is now becoming scarce. There's no pasture. And then the third one is verse 9. Uh, her filthiness is in her skirts. She remembers not her last end. Therefore, she came down wonderfully. She had no comforter. No comforter. You know... You've seen enough where people have been taken captive or they're slaves or been, you know, overcome by another enemy. This is exactly what happens. That which was peaceful in their life, now no rest. That which they had plenty of, now there's no pasture. Those that were around to comfort and a source of comfort because they were where they wanted to be and were before they were dragged away, now there's no comforter. A little bit of an aside, because I wanted to look into this, you know, because she had no comforter. It made me automatically think of, you know, after I depart, I will send another comforter, you know. And most translations now say another helper or another something, but the King James says comforter. And so I, I read some commentators, and some thought that it could be in reference to the fact that the Holy Spirit's work amongst them no longer was as it was and the comfort that he was giving to them or some think it was Yeshua uh, working in them and some think it's just a fact of God. So whether it's God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, if we can use that terminology, for whatever reason, that comfort that they had is now gone. 
And so the immediate results are sadness and servitude. Now, there's some long-term damage. And that's verse 4. That's point number 3. This is where it started really getting to me. Verse 4. So so the long-term damage, the, the word is silence. The ways of Zion do mourn because none come to the solemn feasts. All her gates are desolate. I mean, so it makes you think of pilgrimage, right? They're going up to Jerusalem, to the feasts and to the festivals. There's a whole bunch of of hustle and bustle. The, The highways and byways are just packed full of people that are heading into Jerusalem for these wonderful, for the wonderful occasions of these feasts. But right now, no one is traveling to Jerusalem for the feast. The roads are empty and silent. And that's a long-term lingering damage. You know, there's, the sin has come full force upon them. Now they're experiencing the sadness and the servitude. They're no longer their own people. But even worse than that is the roads that we all used to travel, those highways, byways, whatever you want to call them, to go to Jerusalem for those happy occasions. Nobody's traveling the roads. Silence. Silence. So, so why was there silence? Well, verse 10. The adversary has spread out his hand upon all her pleasant things, for she has seen that the heathen entered into her sanctuary, whom thou didst command that they should not enter into thy congregation. Why is there silence? Because God's people have been ejected. Now the heathen are coming in and just having their way with it all. There's no solemn feast because the heathen are entered into the sanctuary and they're not supposed to be there. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 5. says, The Lord was an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces. He hath destroyed his strongholds and hath increased in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. And he hath violently taken away his tabernacle as if it were a garden. He hath destroyed his places of the assembly. Yehovah hath caused the the solemn feast and Sabbath to be forgotten in Zion and hath despised uh, and hath uh, and hath despised the nation of his anger, the king and the priest. The Lord hath cast off his altar. He hath abhorred his sanctuary. He hath given up into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They have made a noise in the house of Yehovah as in the day of a solemn feast. The, you know, the enemy's in the sanctuary, but it tells us here that. God is the one that did it. Verse 6. Yehovah hath caused the solemn feast and the Sabbath to be forgotten in Zion. God's done this. Clark said, Instead of the silver trumpets of the sanctuary, nothing but the sounds of warlike instruments are to be heard. Now, go to Jeremiah 52. We're going to read this. This is a recounting of the temple being destroyed. And I'm going to tell you so that you can maybe enter in ahead of time where, where I was with this. When I read this section, to me, this is, I wrote this down. The temple is now like a dead corpse. The spirit is gone. Have you ever been... You know, to a place, a town, a city, or even a house that you grew up or, or some place that was very dear to you that you maybe lived in and went back and visited. And, and it's just not the same. This happened with the cottage that, one of the cottages that my grandparents had that I went to, gosh, all summer long on the weekends. I'd love that place. 
Well, she sold it. It's no longer ours anymore. I've been back a few times to just look at it from the outside. I told you a story. One time I got up enough nerve, it was Thanksgiving, going to my sister's, and I said, hey, honey, let's, let's go take a look at the cottage again. And it's had some work done to it. It has its addition to the second top half, but it looks beautiful. And, and I, I just, I'm taking pictures, and I think, well, maybe I better go up to the door and let them know that this crazy's out here taking pictures. So the, the lady, the wife comes to the door, and as soon as she opens, I'm going to do it now. As soon as she opens the door, I just stand there and bawl. I just, I, I couldn't help it. Because that was a place that was very near and dear to me. That was a, a haven of safety and rest and calmness away from the craziness. And so I told her who I was, and she said, oh, do you want to come in? And I said, oh, I'd love to. By now the husband's come. They're about you guys' age, maybe a little bit older. And uh, so I said, my wife's there. Can, I, can she come? So we went in and got to walk around as much as I loved it. It was like a dead corpse. The spirit was gone. Because our family's not there anymore. It's not even ours. I can't visit it. I can't go there. When we read this about the temple, have that kind of in your mind. Because the heathen have entered the temple. The life and the joy that was there on the roads. And when there, it's all silenced. And now what is in there? Instead of the silver trumpets of the sanctuary, nothing but the sounds of warlike instruments are to be heard. It's, it's just a dead, empty shell now. The spirit is gone. It's a dead corpse. All right, verse 12. Now in the fifth month, in the tenth day of the month, which was the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, named came Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, which served the king of Babylon into Jerusalem, and burned the house of Yehovah, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, and all the houses of the great men, burned it with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans that were with the captain of the guard break down all the walls of Jerusalem round about. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captives, certain of the poor of the people, and the residue of the people that remained in the city, and those that fell away, that fell to the king of Babylon, and arrested a multitude. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left certain of the pure, uh, poor of the land for vine dressers and for horsemen. And now this part. Also, the pillars of brass that were in the house of Yehovah, and the bases, and the brazen sea that was in the house of Yehovah, the Chaldeans break and carried all the brass of them to Babylon. The cauldrons also, and the shovels, and the snuffers, and the bowls, and the spoons, and all the vessels of brass wherewith they ministered took they away. And the basins, and the fire pans, and the bowls, and the cauldrons, and the candlesticks, and the spoons, and the cups, that which was of gold and gold, and that which was of silver and silver, took the captain of the guard away. The two pillars, one sea, and twelve brazen bulls that were under the bases, which King Solomon had made in the house of Yehovah, the brass of all these vessels was without weight. And concerning the pillars, the height of one pillar was 18 cubits, and the fill of the 12 cubits did compass it about, and the sickness was on, and, and, and so then it continues on. But I read that, and I'm thinking, oh, I mean, I was getting sad. The roads, nobody's traveling. The priests and the prophets no longer are doing what they're supposed to do. The heathen have not only entered the temple, but now they're just dismantling it and carrying it away. And, and as I'm reading this, I'm visualizing all the stuff that was there just being destroyed and taken out and removed. And now I'm standing alone there, all by myself, in the midst of an empty shell. And I'm here to tell you that's what sin does. It just leaves you an empty shell. No life, no joy. Everything that brought comfort, everything that meant anything to you gets dismantled. And it happens quicker than you would think. Right? 
So I wanted to end positive. So we had the cause, sin, the immediate results, sadness and servitude, the long-term, the lingering damage, the silence. So what's the solution? I, I find it interesting that, you know, it's all happened, but yet Jeremiah is still writing about this. It's kind of like, it's like my wife would always tell me, honey, you, you said what you said, you said it, then you said it again, then you said it again. You know, I, I, and I still do it. You know, I just, I preach, the, I preach the message four times, one way or another, while I'm preaching it. Well, you know, it's like, here we get to this point in Jeremiah, in case you guys missed it, if you're really wondering what has happened, if your head is reeling too much, I'm going to tell you why things have happened as they have happened. And he gives us this book, these five chapters. And it's not a happy picture. And I didn't want to end that way. So what's the solution? How to find rest? The wicked are like the troubled sea that, that have no rest. There's no rest for the wicked. And the truth is, the unsaved person is not at rest. And the truth is, the child of God that is not living as they should for God are not at rest. I'm, I'm going to end even on a more positive note. But, but So what's the little solution? How do you find rest? All right, for God's people, go to Jeremiah chapter 6. Jeremiah chapter 6. You know, I was just, I, I just, for myself, I had to, I had, after I got through with this, it's like, no, no, I have to, I can't end this way. I don't even like this ending. So, how to find rest, a solution for God's people. Verse 16 of chapter 6. Thus saith Yehovah, stand ye in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk therein. The old paths. You know, I, I can't, I don't even know where to begin to tell you what that is. For me, the old paths are going back to my old, dead, and buried, and long-gone predecessors. Predecessors. The Lester Roloffs, the Spurgeons, the Moody's, the, the Ian Paisley's now, um, Jonathan Edward, Hudson Taylor, uh, you know, who I can't think of anymore, the, the, that missionary that you're reading. Patton, John Patton. I, I'm going back to these guys, not because they got it all together, but I'm telling you, from where they were to where we are now, it's, it's not, it wouldn't even be recognizable to these guys. Spurgeon came back to England and London now. He wondered what would happen. If Jonathan Edwards, who, who preached in New England and, and there was that mighty revival take place, came back to New England now. I'm going back to the old ways. At least some of these things that are contemporary to me to some way to find out how did we get from there to here? How did we get to where we are in Christianity, in our country, in God's people? We, we're, we stray. We stray. And the problem is each generation lives in their own generation, and because they don't look back, all they see is themselves. They don't realize that where they are is so far removed from where their predecessors were. If you want rest as a child of God, you're going to have to anchor yourself something other than the present in which you live. I've said it several times. This is why the scripture says, and they, he did as David his father, as David his father, as David his father. Well, David his father is many, 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 many generations away, removed now. But they're being instructed to go back to a point in time, 
a spot in which they can get their barons reset to not stray too far from. So Jeremiah, before he gets the lamentation, before he even sees what's going to happen in, in real time, he says, listen, you guys, this is what God's telling you. Stand in the old ways and see and ask for the old paths. Where's the good way? Walk in that and you'll find rest for your souls. Basically, he's saying, take inventory of where you are now. Look at where you've strayed and get back there before it's too late. That's how God's people find rest. Ultimately, it's, for us, it's go back to this book. Read it. Immerse yourself in it. Like I told you before, it's, I got it written down here. It was said of... Uh, see if I can find it, of William Tyndale that he was singularly, singularly addicted to the scriptures. It was said of Jonathan Edwards that he was a God-besotted man. He had a single-minded preoccupation with God. Go back to the old ways. Go back to Tyndale where he was singularly addicted to the scriptures. That's in tares and wheat. Oh, See, if you read my blog, this is this this is the stuff. I I I I go back to these guys because I want my life to somewhat emulate Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Yeshua, Lester Roloff. You want peace? You have to get back to this book. There's just no way around. All right. I'm beating this to death. All right, so then what's the solution for the lost? How do, they, how do they find rest? Turn up to Matthew 11. Matthew 11. You know, don't forget, the lost was us. We, we're saved now by grace, not because of anything. So, but these are the words of Yeshua, the solution. What's his solution for the lost? Jeremiah said, get back to the old ways, people of God. Don't be stubborn and say, no, we're not going to do that. And then Yeshua is, is, is given the remedy for the unrest of the lost person. 11.28, come unto me, he says, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What do you have to do? Exchange a yoke here. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then not much longer, he's looking over Jerusalem and saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you together if the hen gathers and brood under her wings, but you would not. Your house is going to be left to you desolate. They wouldn't listen. All right, now, conclusion. We'll be done. I noticed while in my blog I was talking about, you know, going back and listening to my messages in Luke's, and I don't know who preaches, and then be, who's preaching, you know, because I want to listen to mine, listen to Luke's. Well, it's very obvious. If you find anything close to an hour, it's me. If you find something that's 30, 35 minutes, it's Luke. You know, I can't shut up. It's my point. All right, so conclusion. Satan wants to silence the impact and witness of God's people. This has always been his goal. And exactly what I preached on this morning and all the steps of everything is exactly still how Satan works now. That's how he worked then. So this has always been Satan's goal. And the more he can get God's people intertwined with the world while in the diaspora, the more he will be successful. Right? Satan's goal was to get the people out of the land and intertwined with the Heathen. And, and that happened. And so that's the same goal now. Get God's people intertwined and mixed into the world. But in a positive way. And this is kind of where, for me, it's all kind of came to a concluding point. But in a positive day. In these end times, there is a restlessness among us, God's people. The bride is wanting to separate herself from all others in order to be presentable 
for when the bridegroom appears. I really think that's what's happening. Because there is a, in a positive sense, a good restlessness among God's people, especially those that are coming into this messianic mindset, because this is, I, he's pulling out his remnant for the return of the bridegroom for the bride. And he's preparing the bride. And so what's happening is part of that preparation, I have to believe, because God's people find no rest among the heathen. As it gets closer to the time, I think we, as God's people, are starting to get restless. We're not finding our rest in this life anymore. We're not finding our rest in the things anymore. This world it's, it's, it's whole has less and less of a, an appeal and a hold to us. We're, we're in Colossians where don't set your thing, mind on things below, but set your mind on things above. And, and only a restlessness brings that about to where we're not so focused horizontally here in the present, but we start to lift our gaze off of these things. And because there's a restlessness, it doesn't satisfy, it's empty. That's why we got saved in the first place. So why did God's people plunge back into it again? They get intertwined and, and, and enamored with the things of the world. And you get tired of kind of being, you know, off to the side and not apart. And so there's this gen, general mixing of the tares among the wheat and the wheat among the tares. And, and God doesn't like a mixture. And so when he comes back, He's going to separate, and I believe part of that is this restlessness. I'm feeling it. Anybody else feeling it? And I think that's a positive thing. We're not to be at ease in Zion. We're supposed to be at dis-ease. I don't know, whatever word it is. The opposite. And I, I just think, God, as I read through Lamentations and I read this chapter and thought about the restlessness that, yes, this is a good thing. So simply put, we're getting tired of being among the heathen. Not because they're so bad and we're so good. That's not what I'm saying. But we realize it's, it's, that's why we got saved in the first place, because it's empty, and now we went back into it, and we're, what are we doing? And so we're getting to the point where we're being tired. We're just tired of being among the heathen. We're tired of being restless. We're longing to find our rest with our Savior. And that's the whole point of this message. You know, I could have just said that in five minutes. So yeah, there is no rest for the people of God among the heathen. And, and to, to get to the point where I just finished with, you're going to have to realize the cause is sin. The immediate results, if we don't change our ways, are sadness and servitude. The long-term damage, the lingering results is Satan will silence us. Our witness will be next to nothing. We are, the, the light that we're supposed to be shining, it's just going to be dimmed. And that's what Satan wants. So the solution, get back to the old paths. I'm headed there. If you don't know what they are and you don't have any, they're right here in this book. As I said in my blog, I'm not preaching anything different than what my predecessors preached. And for the lost, how do you get started? Well, just like for those of us that were saved, did you come unto Yeshua. Right? You come to Yeshua and you find your rest. Let's pray. Father, just thank you for ministering. I hope somehow you use this to minister to others. Um, I, I, through all of, reading all the negativity about this restlessness among the heathen, I was so excited when the positive hit me. I have a restlessness. I'm getting so tired of being where I'm not supposed to be, don't want to be. I long to be either in my land on this earth or with before Yeshua comes, or I'm longing for Yeshua to come back and, and claim me as his own. 
I'm, I'm just ready. And I think that's a good thing. And I, I do think, Father, until your people get to the point where they're just sick and tired of being in this world, it's just delaying, I guess, your return. And I, I kind of want to end it like the book of Revelation. Even so, come, Yeshua, come. So, Father, just bless, I pray, and thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen.